the entirety of the Bible. We're in the period of the divided kingdom. Uh, we began this quarter last week looking at the kingdom dividing. Uh, northern tribes going to the reign of Jeroboam and the southern tribes to Rehoboam. Uh, after that, Rehoboam tries to gather an army from Judah and Benjamin and go up against Israel to take it back, but the Lord tells him not to do that, and so that doesn't happen. Uh, and now we're going uh, this morning to look at uh, the beginning and uh, sort of the end of Rehoboam's reign, but Jeroboam and Rehoboam both, the characteristics of their reign, what uh, characterized uh, both kingdoms during this early period of the divided kingdom, and the kinds of men that both of these men were as they sat on the throne. So, right off the bat, uh, we'll be looking at Rehoboam's failures and Jeroboam's religion, if you will, that he set up uh, in the northern kingdom. Jeroboam seeks to establish a state religion in Israel in order to keep the people of Israel from going back down to Jerusalem. We pick up in 1 Kings chapter 12 and verse 25. Jeroboam built Shechem. So Shechem's an ancient city. We talked about that last week. That's where the, all the people met to decide that they didn't want Rehoboam to be their king. Uh, and it's an ancient site, one that Abraham had visited uh, when the Israelites had been to when they first came into the land. Uh, and yet, uh, when it says Jeroboam built it, I suppose that means that he fortifies it uh, so it would be, uh, you know, serve as his capital for a while at least. So he, he builds Shechem in the, mountains, in the mountains of Ephraim and dwelt there. Also he went from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom may return to the house of David if these people go back, go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn back to their Lord, Rehoboam king of Judah, and they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam king of Judah. So Jeroboam's concern now is completely political. He wants to keep power. If that sounds familiar to you in modern politics, that seems to be the way it's always been. You get power, you want to keep power, and sometimes at all costs. So Jeroboam is thinking exactly that. He doesn't want to lose power. He doesn't want to lose his newly minted kingdom. And, and so he plots this way. Uh, the king asks advice in verse 28. And uh, he made two calves of gold and said to the people, it's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. He, he does almost exactly, of course, what the Israelites did when they fell away at Sinai. But this is hundreds of years later. You might remember the golden calf at Sinai. This is the God that brought you up out of Egypt. Now Jeroboam sort of echoes that same approach to getting God's people to turn away from the Lord. Uh, he, makes this, an alt, he makes an altar at Bethel and, uh, and one at Dan. And we'll see in a second, these are the extremities uh, of the boundaries of the kingdom. Uh, he fears that he's going to lose the kingdom, as I said, that he just received. And there's, there's good reason for thinking that. First of all, uh, faithful priests living in Ephraim had already defected back to Judah. In 2 Chronicles chapter 11, verses 13 and 14, from all their territories, the priests and the Levites who were in all Israel took their stand with him, that is with Rehoboam, for the Levites left their common lands 
and their possessions and came to Judah and Jerusalem. For Jeroboam and his sons had rejected them from serving as priests of the Lord. So the Levites, the true uh, carriers of the priesthood, they go back down to Judah by and large. And uh, Jeroboam has already seemingly lost all of those. And Jeroboam also realizes, of course, that uh, the Israelites, any of them that actually knew the law, and presumably there were some, realized that they were required to make this uh, three times a year pilgrimage, all of the men, uh, to partake of the primary feasts. Uh, they'd had to go to the temple in Jerusalem. The law had said, Deuteronomy 16, 16, Moses had told them right before they came into the land, uh, three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place that He chooses. So God chose the place. It was in Jerusalem. That had been done. They were to go up for the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, uh, the Feast of Weeks, that's Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. They were to go and appear before the Lord. Well, Jeroboam didn't want a flood of his... Uh, able-bodied men going over the border three times a year down to Judah. Uh, you know, they might like it too much. They might find devotion to the God uh, of the Israelites. And uh, so he certainly didn't want any of that. So he's got, in his mind at least, uh, lots of reasons for not wanting the people to go there and lots of reasons then for establishing this very false state religion uh, in the northern kingdom. So with a selfish plan, Jeroboam tells his people basically that worship back in Jerusalem is just going to be inconvenient. He set up one of these uh, calves at, in Bethel, the other at Dan. Now I'm in verse 29 of 1 Kings chapter 12. He made shrines, and those would be small temples of a sort. He made shrines on the high places and made priests from every class of people who were not of the sons of Levi. Jeroboam ordained a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the feast that was in Judah. This would rival the Feast of Tabernacles. He offered sacrifices on the altar. He did it so at Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. And at Bethel, he installed the priests of the high places which he made. So he made offerings on the altar which he made at Bethel on the 15th day of the 8th month, in the month that he had devised in his own heart, that's critical here. He's coming up with all of this on his own, a new religion to rival the religion of the Israelites and their worship of the true God. He ordained a feast for the children of Israel and offered sacrifices on the altar and burned incense. So uh, everything about this is wrong. The, the idolatry is wrong. The place of worship is wrong. The priesthood is wrong. He's not using Levites at all as the priest, but any Yahoo who comes forward and says, I want to be a priest, He's going to make him a priest. That's, you've just got a, a total perversion of the, the uh, religion of the Israelites. And he does this, obviously, with no conscience or compunction. Uh, continues this all through his reign. The golden calves, Dan and Bethel, building the shrines and the temples on the high places. Uh, We'll talk a little bit about high places here in just a minute, but through the period of the divided kingdom, and really before, even in Solomon's reign, um, idolatrous shrines would be built on the high places. This would, in the minds of ancient people, this was typical. You know, you, you're making it an idol, you're worshiping a god, you get closer 
to heaven somehow in that way by building it on the high place. Uh, and, and so these would be found uh, throughout the period of the divided kingdom all over the place in both northern and southern kingdoms, although at times uh, the kings of Judah would remove them uh, only to be uh, replaced as the people went back into idolatry. And so Jeroboam does all that. He makes priests from all the people. Uh, and again, he starts this feast uh, in the eighth month to replace the Feast of Tabernacles. So he's off to an awful start from a religious standpoint, point from a spiritual standpoint. A little bit later on when we get to the end of our lesson, we'll make some observations about how these actions in a lot of ways are being replicated even today as people make false religions for their own convenience and sort of scuttle the religion of Jesus Christ and the ordinances and the orders of our Lord and Savior. If we look at this on a map, Dan is the far northern extent of the northern kingdom, and Bethel is just nearly right on the border with the southern kingdom. So from Dan to Bethel covers the north and the south of the northern kingdom. This is the site of the altar of the golden calf at Dan. This would have been where the altar sat. I got to visit this in 2016. Um, it's a well-known site, an ancient high place, and there's uh, a good bit of archaeological work that has been done there. So this is precisely where that was at the northern end. We don't know for sure where, the, where Bethel was or the site there, but this, this one we do. Um, you see in these pictures, uh, on the one to the top right, you can see the altar place down there in the left corner, but the, the actual high place, the highest spot, probably a little temple or shrine would have been uh, to carry on this worship. You see that in this upper right picture. On the lower left, this is the entrance to the gate at this ritual site at Dan. And what's interesting about that is that that is there to put uh, a throne of a king or a judge who would be the authority in the area whenever they were there. And they would sit at the gate of the city in a place of prominence. Uh, it's almost certain that Jeroboam would have sat there when he visited uh, this, this site, if he ever went up to the uh, shrine at Dan, which certainly he did since he constructed it. So it's, it's interesting to see all of that. It's, it's um, uh, you know, the Bible's real. This is real stuff that we're reading about. It's not, not made up. There's plenty of uh, evidence outside of Scripture that tells us that these things happened as the Bible describes Jeroboam's golden calves, of course, become a snare to the people, to put it mildly. They are regarded by God as an abomination, a horrible sin against Him, and disregarding His and greatness entirely. The, the existence of this religion continued from the time Jeroboam instituted it, right at the beginning of the northern kingdom all the way to the time of the captivity of the northern kingdom, 722. And as, you go through, as we go through the text, we'll see many, many references to it. I have quite a few scriptures there on the screen, uh, and I'll just read two or three of, of them to show that, uh, not only from Jeroboam's lineage, which of course ended, but there'd be other dynasties that came up in the northern kingdom, but it didn't matter. 
the sins of Jeroboam would continue to be committed by Israelites for um, around 200 years. So in 1 Kings 14 and verse 16, uh, God's going to give up Israel because of the sins of Jeroboam who made Israel to sin. In 1 Kings 15 and verse 26, Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, became king. And verse 26 says, He did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father and in sin by which he had made Israel sin. In 1 Kings 15 and verse 34, Basha becomes king and he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of Jeroboam and in his sin by which he made Israel sin. So we could read passage after passage describing king after king who fell into the sins of Jeroboam in the northern kingdom. There's not one uh, from all indications that didn't. This particular uh, perversion of religion, as well as quite a number of other perversions of religion, continued on in the northern kingdom uh, throughout its existence. When you come to uh, the end of these verses that I have listed up there, first, Second Kings, go over to Second Kings 15 and verse 28. It's describing the reign of Pekah. Pekah was the second to the last king of Israel. He reigned from 752 B.C. to 732 B.C. Uh, Assyria is going to take Israel captive in 722. So this is 10 years short of Israel being obliterated and taken captive. Uh, 2 Kings 15 and verse 28, talking about Pekah. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. So this is, you know, a couple hundred years later and still uh, what Jeroboam instituted, what Jeroboam began, uh, had a hold on Israel. Kind of interesting to me, uh, a few years ago, there was a well-known mainline denomination in the United States of America that celebrated, on its own, celebrated its 200th birthday, 200 years from the time that it was originated and begun. And here you have, that's how long, you know, the religion of Jeroboam existed as well. I don't think that's anything to celebrate. We start a church that's not the Lord's church. We do a whole bunch of things that aren't the Lord's way out of convenience because we like them. We introduce instrumental music. We uh, do all sorts of things, have women preachers and accept homosexuals and all of that sort of thing, all of that out of line with the will of God. And we celebrate the 200-year existence of that particular denomination. Uh, that's what we've got going on in the world right now. That's very similar to what went on in the world back then. Doug? Right. 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 And here's somebody, you know, to whom the Lord had spoken through the prophet and somebody who knew there was a God in heaven. And last, you know, he's not interested in going to God's word at all. He never, he never said, uh, bring me a prophet and read me the law. What are we supposed to be doing here? Never said that. He gets advice from anybody but God. And, and that's what happens even today. You know, people say, well, I'm going to talk to my friends about it. I'm going to pray about it, which is just uh, basically saying to God what I want. And then uh, I'm going to do that. that. That's essentially Jeroboam's approach. And the same thing is happening today. 
Well, uh, the Lord sends a prophet uh, to God, to Jeroboam, I should say, to condemn him for these actions. Uh, Jeroboam had rejected God's plan, and God had promised him, if you'll, if you'll do what I say, if you'll keep my word, I will establish your throne in the northern kingdom just like I established David's throne. He promised him that back in uh, 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 37 and 38. He said, if you heed all that I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight, keep my statutes and my commandments, as my servant David did, I will be with you and build for you an enduring house as I built for David and will give Israel to you. So it was all in front of Jeremiah if he'd had any faith in God. God, you know, here's the advice, Doug talking about the advice God would give. God, God said, I'll give it to you all. Just do, just do what I say. You're worried about losing the kingdom? You're not going to lose the kingdom if you just do what I say. But that's the last thing on his mind. Uh, the last thing he wants to do. He doesn't want to do what God says. So God sends this prophet uh, to Jeroboam to rebuke his sinful actions and pronounce judgment against him. A man of God in chapter 13 comes up from Judah to Bethel, so from the southern kingdom up over the border to the northern kingdom. By the word of the Lord, Jeroboam stood at the altar to burn incense there in Bethel. And he cried out, the prophet does, against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a child, Josiah by name, shall be born to the house of David. And on you he shall sacrifice the priests of the high places who burn incense on you, and men's bones shall be burned on you. That's a prophecy of the far yet to come King Josiah who would cleanse the land fairly thoroughly of all of this sort of nonsense. Um, And also kill the priests who were engaging in it. The prophet uh, gives a sign that this is going to be the case. He gave a sign that same day saying, this is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Surely the altar shall split apart and the ashes on it shall be poured out. This is uh, you know, just something that's going to verify that this prophet is authentically speaking for God. God often did that for his prophets would allow them to perform some sort of miraculous sign so the people they knew that, that, that they were speaking to would know that this man's speaking for God. So what's going to happen? The altar is going to split apart. Well, Jeroboam reacts to this by basically stretching out his hand uh, angrily and saying, arrest the prophet. But when uh, he stretches out his hand to make that motion, his hand freezes up and he can't draw it back. And... Uh, simultaneously, apparently, the altar does split this very sign that uh, the prophet had just pronounced. Jeroboam, let's just say he probably felt funny about that, about that, about that point. Uh, there, standing there frozen with his arm frozen, his altar being split apart. And uh, now, all of a sudden, of course, the first thing Jeroboam thinks about is Jeroboam. I, I mean, you know, if this hits you and you have any kind of a conscience, what you would immediately say is, oh, I have sinned, I must be doing wrong, uh, please ask God to forgive me. Jeroboam says, uh, please fix my hand. Okay, so the prophet prays God and his hand is restored. And then he invites the prophet home with him. Uh, but the prophet says, um, no, I, I can't come. Uh, and the reason that he can't come is because God told him not to. Verse 7, 
said to the man of God, come home with me and refresh yourself and I will give you a reward. A reward for what? You know, first of all, why would you want to go to the enemy of God to get any kind of reward? But the man of God said, no, I, I couldn't take it if I wanted to. If you give me half your house, I could not go with you. Uh, for I was command, it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, you shall not eat bread, nor drink water, nor return by the same way you came. This is a really important uh, point. I think most of us know this story and what's going to happen. But right here, let's make sure that we understand that God had spoken to this prophet directly. There was not any doubt in his mind what God had said to him. He knew the word of the Lord. He knew that God had empowered him to do these signs. He'd done two miracles right here. The, the, the altar had split open and the, the man's hand was healed. Jeroboam's uh, arm was healed. So he was an authentic prophet of God, no doubt about that. And he surely knew that he was and that God had spoken to him. So the prophet knew all of that. And he's not even supposed to go you know, home the same way he came. God doesn't want him to get familiar with this land of a bunch of heathens now, uh, I suppose is the reason for that. So he leaves, but now as we continue the story in verses 11 through 19, an older prophet gets involved. And this older prophet dwelt around Bethel somewhere. His sons come and tell him what the first prophet had done. And so that piques his interest, and he goes looking for the first prophet, and he finds him, he finds him uh, under an oak tree, and this, old, this uh, second older prophet invites the first prophet to come home with him. So we're now in chapter 13, verses 16 and 17. He said, I cannot return with you. This is the first prophet. I cannot return with you or go in with you. Neither can I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For I have been told by the word of the Lord, you shall not eat bread or drink water there, nor return by going the way you came. The prophet knows his instructions. He knows what he's not supposed to do. The old prophet, the second prophet, tells the first one, though, I too am a prophet. This is verse 18. I too am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you to your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. He was lying to him. I, mean, I want to make just a, a point in passing here. If you know you have the word of God, and somebody over here says, An angel spoke to me and said something different. What does the New Testament say about that in Galatians chapter 1? Though we are an angel from heaven, speak to you any other gospel. That's the same principle is true today. We've got religions in this country, folks, and religions in, the, in this world who are built on the fact that claim, I should say, that some angel spoke to some prophet, whether it's Joseph Smith or Muhammad, some angel spoke to some prophet, supposedly, and told the prophet to do something other than what God said to do to begin with. That's false religion. It's not true. And this first prophet should have known that. He did know that. He, I, you feel sorry for him, in a way, but he knew what God's word was. He absolutely knew. 
and to believe that, well, God changed His Word by telling an angel to tell some other prophet to come tell me. I'm waiting until I hear it from God. That's what you've got to say. I'm waiting until I know it's God's Word. But that's not what he says. He believes, apparently, this uh, second prophet. So, he goes home with him. In verses 20 and 21, um, Right, there's no proof that he's a prophet at all. Right. And that's, by the way, uh, the so-called prophets who claim that angels appeared to them, both Muhammad and Joseph Smith, neither one of them did miracles either. Uh, They just had this claim. Uh, Verses 20 and 21. It happened when they sat at the table that the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had been who had brought him back. Now he's going to really prophesy. And he cried out to the man of God who came from Judah, saying, Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and have not kept the commandment which the Lord your God had commanded you, but came back, ate bread, drank water in the place which the Lord said, Eat no bread, drink no water. Your corpse shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. You're going to die. You're not even going to make it home. And of course, that's precisely what happened. The first prophet leaves. He's going down the road. He's killed by a lion. The lion doesn't eat him. The lion doesn't eat the donkey that he was on either, the animal, and um, leaves him there for dead. Uh, Doug, do you have something else? Hmm. Right. Yeah, he, he doesn't seem to. He, I don't. There's no record that he apologizes either to the first prophet or to God. He feels bad later on, obviously, about what happens to this uh, prophet that he's deceived, and he realizes a little later on that this prophet was indeed speaking the truth. But uh, there's no true indication of any kind of repentance. Uh, which may or may not be there, but certainly not in the record. Uh, so the, the story ends up, you know, pretty sadly. Uh, he, he hears about this dead body. He goes, this second prophet does, this older prophet. He goes and looks for the prophet's body. He founds, finds it in this unnatural situation where this, this lion and a donkey are standing there sort of by the body. Uh, again, an indication this was something from God. It's not something lions don't kill just to sit there and watch, you know, uh, the corpse. Um, another inter- interesting thing, too, about this, just in passing from the uh, sort of the geography and the animal life of ancient times, there are not lions in Israel now, uh, and there uh, weren't in the time of Christ either, but there certainly were. Uh, from lots of records of them back in this time. Uh, They're mentioned several times in Scripture uh, and outside Scripture as well. So I think that's uh, kind of interesting, just, again, the Bible's right about things. The other thing is that his name 
Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't touch either one of them. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so, the older second prophet brings back the body to his house, uh, buries him so his body does not return to his homeland, uh, and instructs his sons that he wants to be buried with the first prophet's bones when he dies because the words that he has spoken will surely come to pass. For the saying, verse 32, which he cried out by the word of the Lord against the altar in Bethel and against all the shrines on the high places which are in the cities of Samaria will surely come to pass. The prophet, the second prophet, I think, at least sees uh, the tragedy that he has had a part in uh, perpetrating here. None of that dissuades Jeroboam from the incident at the altar to hearing about the death of the prophet and God's uh, judgment on him. You know, again, you would think a rational person would at some point here stop and say, God's not for me. God's against me. I, I've got I've to change. But Jeroboam rushes headlong into his uh, ungodliness, as we've already said. All right, we want to talk a little bit about what's going on in the southern kingdom during this time. Uh, Rehoboam is fortifying his cities, uh, strengthening his borders. We're going to look at Second Chronicles chapter 11 to get some of this detail. If you want to flip over there and look, look there with me. Um, so he, he, he takes care of a lot of that. Um, you have in verses 5 through 12, of uh, 2 Chronicles 11. Rehoboam's dwelling in Jerusalem and he's building up the defenses in Judah. It mentions several cities there through verse 10. Uh, he stations officers in the city. He fortifies the strongholds in verse 11. Put captains in them, stores of food, oil and wine. So he's uh, getting in a defensive position here with uh, uh, fortified strongholds. Uh, throughout the land and in defensive places and uh, supplying them with everything that's needed. In every city he put shields and spears and made them very strong, having Judah and Benjamin on his side. So he's in a, as I said, a strong defensive position and uh, trying to make sure that his kingdom is solidified. He also uh, gains the moral support of the Levites. We already mentioned this, but a lot of the the Levites from the northern kingdom have come down. They willingly leave their homes and their pasture lands, which they had in the northern kingdom, in order to give uh, their services to the God of heaven and perform the duties of their service in the temple. So that's commendable, certainly, of the true Levites uh, to want to carry on that work of God. Um, In verse 11, uh, verse 16, rather, of chapter 11. After the Levites left, those from all the tribes of Israel, such as set their heart to seek the Lord God of Israel, came to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord God of their fathers. So there were people who, individuals, who wanted to be uh, part of serving God in the way that God want, deserves to be served. In the northern kingdom, Jeroboam is just appointing anybody, anybody but Levites. He doesn't want the Levites. And so, as, as we've already said, he's willing to just 
use anybody in his false religion in the north. We're reminded as we go forward in looking at the southern kingdom that Jerusalem was the city that God had chosen from all the tribes to put his name there uh, for the temple to be there. Uh, If we flip back to 1 Kings chapter 14 though, uh, we'll see a problems that will begin to arise. Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old. I think I said he was 40 last week. He was 41 years old when he became king. He reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Nama and Ammonitus. Is there a problem with that? He's going to be heavily influenced by his mother, don't you think? And so the idolatry that... uh, follows is therefore not surprising. Solomon had engaged, engaged in all idolatry because of his wives, and I think Rehoboam's been heavily influenced by his mother. Uh, so then it says in verse 22 of 1 Kings 14, that Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord. They provoked him to jealousy with their sins. They committed more than all that their fathers had done. So Solomon had been doing some bad stuff And yet they did even more. Listen to this. They also built for themselves high places, sacred pillars, and wooden images on every high hill under every green tree. And they were also perverted persons in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. It happened in then in the fifth year of King Rehoboam that Shishak, king king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. So what it looks like is there's an initial time when Rehoboam is... Uh, solidifying the kingdom, and somewhat spiritually even, welcoming the Levites back, getting the services of the temple going, uh, promoting that perhaps. But then during this five-year time, uh, again, everything slides completely downhill, and they begin to practice idolatry of the most egregious kinds. So he he departs from God. He forsakes the law uh, once he got strong. That's what 2 Chronicles chapter 12 and verse 1 says. It came to pass when Rehoboam had established the kingdom, strengthened himself, that he forsook the law of God and all Israel with him. That's exactly what we've seen. So, in Rehoboam's fifth year, God sends Shishak, who's the Pharaoh of Egypt, against him with an astoundingly large army, 1,200 chariots, 60,000 horsemen, and so many foot soldiers, they couldn't be numbered. Uh, So, huge army coming up from Egypt. uh, And he captures all of these fortified cities. You see, don't trust in yourself. Don't trust trust in your own horses, your own shields, your own... Don't trust in your own weaponry. Rehoboam had prepared all of this stuff. We just talked about that. Got these fortified cities, built them up, stored them. Shishak comes and he just wipes them all out. Every last one of them. Takes all of these fortified cities that that, uh, Rehoboam had just prepared and uh, advanced as far as Jerusalem and probably would have taken Jerusalem, but the Lord stopped him because Rehoboam and the people turned to the Lord and asked for help. And the Lord's gracious and kind despite how they'd been behaving. And uh, he uh, stops uh, the advancement of Shishak. Uh, Shemaiah, the prophet of this time, and he'd spoken earlier to Jeroboam, says, thus says the Lord, you've forsaken me, and therefore I've also left you in the hand of Shishak. But when Rehoboam and his princes humble themselves, God spares them, but they would still serve him. They would still serve. They'd be uh, 
one might say even vassals for a while, of Egypt, that they may learn the difference between my service and the service of the kingdoms of men. You know, serving me is not anything like having to serve the world. Right? Serving God is, is nothing like having to serve the world or being under the thumb of those in the world, no matter how difficult we think it might be. But Egypt plunders Judah extensively. Um, they take treasures of the Lord's house in the king's palace. Uh, Solomon's 200 gold shields were taken. Uh, Rehoboam replaces those with bronze shields. Not hardly quite the same, is it? So at the end of Rehoboam's reign, he did evil because his heart did not seek the Lord. Whenever he would humble himself, the Lord would be with him. But that wasn't often enough. And the text also tells us here that there were wars between Rehoboam and Jeroboam for all of his days. For this 17-year reign of Rehoboam, there would be skirmishes continually. So Rehoboam died, and his son Abijah becomes king in his place. That's what happens at the end of this text in 2 Chronicles 12. A couple of lessons I think are worthwhile. We've touched on them already. But from Jeroboam's error, we learn that religious service to God has to be according to his expressed will. Changing God's order for our convenience is iniquity at best. God regards that as just an abomination. Just because it's easy for you, you like to do it, that's what you want, that is a slap in the face to God. Uh, it was that way then, it's that way now. Uh, let's do what God said. Secondly, from the story of the two prophets, and, and this was brought home to me uh, a few years back when we had Paul Williams here as a guest speaker. He preached from this text. I'll never forget it because I was standing up here reading the text. Some of you may remember that. And I remember that lesson like it was yesterday. And Brother, Brother Williams said, you are responsible for what you believe. You are responsible for what you believe. And when you have God's word, and you know what it says, and you believe something else, what do you think God's going to do? Every time. You are responsible for what you believe. And you better get it from God's word. And when you have God's word, you don't change it for anything. It doesn't matter what, how inconvenient it might be, how much you're being pressured by friends, family, whatever. We choose to believe, when we choose to believe that which is contrary to God's word, uh, it's not going to end up well. All right, great lessons from this, and it's a fascinating story. We'll go on, uh, pick up from there uh, in our Wednesday night class. Appreciate the, the good comments and uh, your good attention this morning. Thank you.